No, please stand. <laughs> Remain standing for the reading of God's word. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. While we're doing this, I'd like to remark a bit about uh, my choice of this text. I've come to think of Hebrews as the fifth gospel. It starts as John's gospel does with a clear statement of the, the deity of Christ, who is the Son of God, by whom God created all things, by whom he upholds all things. And uh, then, it, uh, uh, then it goes on to demonstrate or to prove the deity of Christ in the first chapter and the humanity of Christ in the second chapter uh, to, so that we can understand his greatness as our Savior, the Messiah. And then he goes on and talks about the superiority of Christ to Moses and to Abraham, which would be a shock to any Jew, but uh, was a great lesson for God's people uh, because Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the reason I want to turn to Hebrews is because where the Apostle go, Paul goes with us. Uh, the Gospels, uh, the other Gospels, the first three Gospels begin with the beginning of Christ's ministry. And this one speaks of Christ's ministry in light of the Old Testament. And as a fulfiller of the Old Testament, where this uh, uh, chapter goes, or where this book actually goes, is to worship. It speaks about the second coming of Christ at the end of uh, chapter 9. So Christ, having been offered once to appear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly are waiting for him. Then he goes on and talks about the work of Christ ministering our entrance into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God, and goes on then to finish that by talking about worship in chapter 12, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 10. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of those realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written to me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their uh, hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, 
I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession or the confession of our hope without wavering, for he, prom- he who promised is faithful. And let us, co- let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. For if you go, we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will he be deserved, will be deserved by one who has spurned the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So far we read God's word in this uh, portion of scripture. Let us now unite our hearts and minds in a prayer for God's blessing upon our reading and teaching of this world. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the uh, distinct privilege of gathering together to worship you today, to worship you by bowing down before your word and hearing what you have to teach us. And we grant, ask that you will grant that this word may be clearly uh, preached to us, that we may understand it, and that it may bear fruit in our lives, the fruit of godly worship unto your glory, both now and forevermore. For Jesus' sake, amen. Please be seated. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, brothers and sisters in the Lord, we've had the privilege of worshiping here uh, during last uh, winter, and we're very happy to be in your pulpit this morning with the privilege of uh, bringing to you the Word of God, and we thank God for that privilege and pray that he will bless his Word to our hearts and minds. So maybe I'd better get the sermon out. As I said, I, I look at this uh, book of Hebrews as really the fifth uh, gospel. And it has the peculiar uh, nature of being a constant reference to the Old Testament to demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah. He is true God and true man. That he also then uh, fulfills what Moses was and even what Abraham was as the father of believers and then particularly concerning the Old Testament sacrifice and the Old Testament system of bringing people near to God. Those words in verse 22, let us draw near, those are the words korban in Hebrew, which you remember from the gospel where Jesus says, if you say to your parents korban, which means it's given to God as an offering. And that word is used throughout the book of Leviticus as a word for offering and for worship, of drawing near to God. 
And of course, worship, clearly in the Bible, is entering into the presence of God. And the point of my message this morning is that Christ has made the door open into the Holy of Holies, not the earthly Holy of Holies, but the heavenly Holy of Holies. And what happens here is very interesting in the book of Hebrews, written very carefully by a Jewish writer, no question about that. Some think it was Paul, there are some evidence for that, some evidence against that. I don't want to go into that this morning. But what you have is a parenthesis after verse 25, where it says, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some is, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near, and then picking that up in verse 18 of chapter 12. It's a fairly long parenthesis. That's how Hebrews write, by the way. Germans do too. I'm a German, so I know how that works. But the point is that there's a parenthesis there and says, why should we look at the gathering together of the saints who worship as such an important thing? Because, or for, beginning at verse 18 of chapter 12, you have not come uh, to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the, the hearers beg no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches a mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come, and this is what our call to worship this morning, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels and festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits uh, of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What he's telling us is that through Christ uh, ministering our entrance into the Holy of Holies, the heavenly holy of holies, our worship in the New Testament church comes, is taken up to God and participates in the worship of the saints and the worship of the angels uh, and uh, in the presence of God and in the presence of Christ. If Old Testament worship was an awesome thing, this is far more so. For on earth you had insulation. You had the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. The priest went in there once a year with the breastplate that had the 12 tribes of Israel on the stones, carved into the stones that were on the breastplate. He is Israel. And as Israel, on the basis of the sacrifice, he comes into the presence of God. And there are sprinkles of blood on the on the uh, Ark of the Covenant, and then goes out and sprinkles that on the people, applies that to them so that they are received ceremonially into the presence of God, what we would think of as a sacramental uh, 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 service in which the presence of God is uh, the, uh, represented by the Ark of the Covenant, the Emmanuel principle that goes back to the Garden of Eden, you know, that Jesus was named Emmanuel. So that all fits together. But now we come into the Holy of Holies in heaven, and we are there in the presence of God in our heavenly worship. So this uh, book of uh, Hebrews uh, brings in something that is not as clear in the other Gospels, as I call this a Gospel, but makes very, very clear here. And so as we look at the uh, three points I want to make from Hebrews chapter 10, first, we need to recognize that in Christ we are made perfect in the eyes of God. That's extremely important because who can enter into the presence of the Lord 
uh, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, which is not you and me in ourselves, but is you and me in Christ. That is the amazing work of the gospel. Every priest, Old Testament, stands daily ministering and offering the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. The argument of the writer of Hebrews is the Jews should have known that that was not the end of sacrifices there because it was repeated. And if the sin had been taken away, he goes on, verse 12, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. He had only one sacrifice because that sacrifice actually takes away sins and cleanses our conscience. And notice that verse 22, when it talks about entering into worship, said, let us enter into worship having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience with the blood of Christ, and our bodies washed with pure water. The blood of Christ is represented in baptism, also represents not only the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but also the blood of Jesus Christ, which cleanses us from sin. And so, for by one offering, Paul concludes in verse 14, By one offering he has perfected forever those that are sanctified. Now, it's a typical thing that the writer of Hebrews does, which Paul also does as a Jewish writer. He piles up language. By one offering he has perfected. The Christian is perfect in Jesus Christ. He's clothed in the the robe of Christ's righteousness. He is therefore perfect. But he's not only perfect, he's perfect forever. It's a completed Perfection that will not be taken away. The forgiveness of sins for the true believer is yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and indeed forever. What a fantastic work Christ has done. Born as a child so that he'd be one of us, uh, as the early chapters of Hebrews say, uh, he is one of us so that he could suffer with us the consequences of sin, and he takes upon us the job of Messiah at his baptism. And then the result is God's people are perfect, and that's the basis for God's covenant. That's why it's the covenant of grace. This is the covenant I will make with them after those, those days. I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds. I will write them, and their sins and their iniquities I will remember no more. So in Christ, we are made perfect in the eyes of God's legal judgment so that we may enter into the presence of God. And he goes on then in verse 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest of all by the blood of Jesus. That's very clear. That's our second point this morning. Christ's blood ministers entrance into the heavenly holy of holies. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest meaning the holiest place by the blood of Jesus. For, verse 24, Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Thus, just as the high priest went into the holy of holies in the Old Testament, tabernacle, and then the temple representing the people, He appeared sacramentally in the presence of God. Now Christ has entered into heaven to appear in the presence of God for us. Again, we is him and he is us. He represents us to the point that what belongs to him belongs to us, his righteousness. What belongs to us belongs to him, which is our sin. And this Christ accomplished, as we know, by sacrificing his body, by a new and living way which he has consecrated for us through the veil or through the, the, the curtain in the temple, that is to say, his flesh. 
The curtain in the temple represents the flesh of Jesus Christ through which he opens the way into the Holy of Holies. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. Christ's body is the tool of the atonement. As true God and true man, and a true man having a physical body, he has that prepared for him so that that could be the tool by which he makes atonement for us. And then the writer goes on and says, Now, therefore, we have a high priest to end all high priests. We have a heavenly high priest. And having an high priest over the house of God. Not that he should enter often, as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with the blood of others, for then must he have offered, often suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once at the end of the world, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And I think this is really quite familiar uh, material to most of you, that uh, this is what the Apostle Paul preaches, and uh, this is uh, how the writer of Hebrews teaches it, basing his, uh, his lesson on the basis of the Old Testament sacrifice, and making very, very clear that Christ is now the heavenly high priest who does not have to offer himself offering. This he did once, uh, and by that offering he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. Now what's interesting is that uh, the writer there goes on in chapter 10 and talks about worship. Verse uh, 21 has having a high priest over the house of God. Verse 22 is, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. We can come into worship boldly. We can come into worship comfortably, knowing that our sins have been covered in the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what he says, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Now, what's an evil conscience? Biblically, it's a conscience waiting for the axe to fall. (laughs) That's why the unbeliever doesn't look forward to the second coming while the Christian does. He knows in his heart this is the end, and for him it's going to be facing the God that he has despised. And he knows deep down inside what really counts, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1, that there's no escape. And the writer of the Hebrews picks that up several times. In chapter 1, he says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We read that here in this chapter 2. How shall we escape? And then in chapter 12, again, how shall we escape if we refuse to listen to God speaking from heaven? And so he says, Christ is the door to heavenly worship in God's presence. He's the high priest, the heavenly high priest. And therefore, we can draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Uh, as I said, the water of baptism represents that heavenly. It's a, the sacraments are really guarantees. The Bible uses the word sign and seal concerning uh, um, uh, circumcision in uh, Romans chapter 4, uh, verse 11. Abraham was already saved when he was circumcised. He received circumcision as a sign and a seal of the righteousness that he had through faith already. 
That's what we have to understand. And the same thing is true here. We receive the water of baptism as a sign and seal of the righteousness that God visits upon his people. Now we need to understand, and Paul talks about that concerning circumcision in uh, Romans chapter 3. What about the circumcised people who are non-believers? He said, what, what if, if some do not believe? Paul drives it to the end and says, what if nobody believes? Let God be true and every man a liar. The gospel is still true. Even if the whole world throughout its history never had one believer, the gospel would be true. Those who believe in Christ are saved. Those who don't aren't. And so we are brought into the worship of heaven. And so, as he says in chapter 12, uh, after that parenthesis, he says, you haven't come to a mountain that burned with smoke and all those kinds of things. Even Moses was uh, said, I fear and tremble. And then he says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. The heavenly Jerusalem comes down out of heaven in Revelation 21 at the end of the world. And that then comes to the new heaven and to the new earth to be the dwelling place of believers forever. But already that Jerusalem is in heaven. It's the place of the heavenly worship of angels and of uh, righteous people made perfect. That is the saints uh, who have died and gone to heaven. And to God himself, the judge of all, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood... That speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel was a martyr to his faith. But Jesus was not a martyr. He was a substitute for his people and his sprinkled blood, like the sprinkled blood of the Old Testament sacrifice was a a sacramental sprinkling of blood that made us ceremonially clean. The New Testament blood of Jesus actually cleanses that conscience so that we are those who are confident that, as Paul says, All things work together for good to those who love the Lord, who are the called according to his purpose. We don't go through life in a a time of of unrest and antagonism and horrible uh, violence and sin all over the world. Some of it in our own country, we can live confidently. Because Jesus is in heaven ruling the world. Things don't happen by chance. Not a a hair can fall from our heads without the will of God. And Christ is on the throne, and he is judging, and sometimes we miss that. He is reigning, as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, until all his enemies are under his feet. That's the picture that you have also in Revelation, and that's the picture that you have now in Hebrews. Christ is reigning, but he is reigning in the, in, in, on the throne of God over all things as we confess in the Apostles' Creed until he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. Now we finally have to ask ourselves how important is this worship that Christ is leading us in in heaven. For that we go back to Hebrews ten twenty five and 26. Now 26 is actually part of the parenthesis which brings in the whole issue of Uh, Can uh, Christians live in sin? And then, of course, chapter 11 is the uh, catalog of the Old Testament saints before it gets back to chapter 12, verse 18, uh, where we come back to this worship issue again. 
But in chapter 10, verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. Wow. The writer has said in verse 24, uh, 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 working to help each other maintain love and good works. And his example of good work is joining together with the church in worship. And that's so important that when we refuse to do that, we are sinning willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth. And there's no more sacrifice for sin. Deliberately refusing to worship in the congregation of God's people is fundamentally a a sin that leads to hell. Now, I didn't say this. The Bible says that. There's no way you can understand those words except that way. And so we want to recognize the importance of New Testament worship in the eyes of the writers of Hebrews, who, of course, is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so that we take seriously what is said. And then the other application is at the end of of chapter 12, or toward the end of chapter 12 and verse 25. When he says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, that would have been Moses, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. The preaching of the word of God is the center of worship because, and the reading of the word of God is the center of worship, because the most careful and complete way we bow down before God is to listen submissively and obediently to his word. That's why in Reformed worship, the center of the worship service is the reading and preaching of the word of God. Because that's the way that God communicates salvation to us. He calls us to believe and to obey that word. That's what he says in verse 25. Do not refuse him who is speaking. Because he speaks from heaven. The completion of the New Testament and the calling of the New Testament preacher, he's the New Testament prophet actually, he speaks the word of God, is an extremely serious business. And like Jonah I think every minister who's called to the gospel tries to run away. I did. (laughs) And finally he grabs you by the neck and stuffs your head in it and says, get to work, and then there's no regrets. I have to say, no regrets. Once I bowed my heart to God's will that I should be a preacher, my father raised me to be an engineer, and I was pretty good at that. I worked in cancer research for a while. (laughs) And, uh, but I, I couldn't live with it. But the point is, that is a very, very serious calling. And that's why the preacher has to preach the word of God and not something else. The authority is not the preacher. The authority is the word of God. He doesn't say, see that you uh, uh, listen to him who speaks from the pulpit. He says, listen to him who speaks from heaven. That's why the Apostle Paul says, we who preach are a savor of life unto life, 
and a savor, a taste of death unto death. Who is sufficient for these things? Paul says, no way, not me. Well, if the Apostle Paul wasn't, I sure ain't either. No way. He says, our sufficiency is of God. And so we need to be very careful about the humility of the pastor. Not, as Paul says, to preach ourselves, but Christ and him crucified. And to preach that with all our hearts, knowing that when we do that, we are doing what God calls us to do. And when we don't do that, and no, no preacher is perfect, let me tell you that. I spent eight years teaching full-time and another 20 years teaching part-time in seminaries. And so I've, I've trained about 100 preachers. My, and I have always taught the pastoral uh, care and preaching courses. And it, it, to me, it's a, a, tr- a tremendous uh, privilege, a tremendous burden at the same time. But you know, the Christian life is that way. The Christian life is a powerful responsibility, but it's a fantastic privilege and a tremendous joy to be able to live in this world in the light of Christmas in the light of the second coming, and in the light of what we're doing right now, gathering together in the presence of God, who has taken us up to heaven and has listening to our worship even as we listen to his word. What a wonderful, gracious privilege God has given us. The heavenly worship of the true church today is beyond price. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are awed once again by the teaching of your word, taking us places that we have not thought about often, and bringing us back to places that we have thought about and need to be and to have renewed in our hearts. And we pray that your word may renew our faith and strengthen us and make our worship more true and, and faithful to you as we listen obediently to your word, as we sing your praises. And as we, O God, bow down before you and acknowledge that you are our master, our king, our God, and our eternal savior through Christ our Lord. Amen.